Genesis 3, verses 8 through 15. We continue reading through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, of foundations. And we read here, immediately following the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, sin as they ate the forbidden fruit. And now we pick it up at verse 8 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The book of Genesis is foundational, a place of biblical beginnings where revelation takes root and then grows throughout the whole of the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. So we should expect to see seeds planted here that take root and grow through salvation history, affecting us even now. Seeds of God's goodness and generosity in creation, seeds of his gracious love in redemption, and also the seeds of our current experience of sin today. The seeds of sin, the source of our experiences of shame and blame, which often serve to reinforce those things that are worst about us. Yeah, these seeds are our original sin, but we magnify those every day through our own decisions. We ratify original sin with our own commissions of sinful deeds. Let's look at three themes here, verses 8 through 13. The seeds of shame and blame, 
Verses 14 through 15a, the enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. And then the last part of verse 15, the seed of a covenant of grace leading to the seed, Christ. So first, verses 8 through 13, seeds of shame and blame. What we see here in verses 8 through 13 is the effect of sin. Adam and Eve, acting out of pride, had desired to be like God, and knowing good and evil, as it says in verse 5. They had disobeyed God's command given in chapter 2, verse 17, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which had been forbidden. And then what unfolds in these verses with Adam and Eve hiding in the trees of the garden from their creator is a picture of our world without Jesus, without his grace, and without his shed blood. It's an explanation for why the world looks the way it does today and acts the way it does, the way we blame one another, the way that we tend to be immobilized by shame and hurt. There are so many who have turned away from God the way Adam and his wife did. Perhaps there's a time in your life when you remember having turned away to God, away from God. You might even be turning away now, but God is calling you back. We turn away when we ignore the message of the Bible, which tells us of God's love displayed at the cross and at the empty tomb. And we'll rehearse that again next Sunday, Palm Sunday, and Easter the 17th. Now, the behavior of Adam and Eve planted the seeds for our shame, blaming others. It's an inherited guilt, a judicial guilt that we are deserving of death. But it is also an inherited generational shame that we don't want to be around God. It isn't just that he's a judge, but we don't want to be in his presence. And we don't want to be in the presence of others, too. My take on life is that relational shame has the potential to be passed on in families. Guilt is too difficult to face. So many unbelieving people don't admit that they're guilty in the sight of God. They don't admit that they're accountable to a holy God. So they deny God. Either they deny God's existence like an atheist or an agnostic or they deny God's relevance to them in this new generation, this new world in which we live. And they push their guilt away, or they stuff it deep in their heart, and they just go on living, living with the shame. Their inability to face God, their unwillingness to be open to one another. And that can be imparted on families on friends, on work associates. Uh, they ignore the guilt, but they convey the shame because they refuse to admit accountability. They won't convey the guilt because that would admit that there's a God who's relevant to them. But boy, do they convey the shame. And they end up judicially guilty before God and relationally shamed with no recourse except shoveling out more shame on others so that they're not suffering alone. Who wants to suffer alone? Let's make other people miserable along with ourselves. 
Now, the idea of shame in Genesis is explicitly mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 25. And we read there, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They, by implication, then become ashamed. We see in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They had been naked in verse 25, not ashamed, but now they're naked. They, they knew they were naked, naked, and the implication is that they're shamed because they're covering up with fig leaves. But right away, God came forth to them and called them out, called to them. It's an act of grace that he went after them. God was reaching out to have relationship with his rebellious, disobedient image bearers. If you're walking today in guilt and shame, realize that coming here today is a fact of your life. You happen to be sitting in Redeemer, Reformed, what's the name out there? Presbyterian Church. You're happening to be in a church that glorifies Jesus and glorifies the sovereignty of God, that God is coming after you. It's his initiative, and he is here today speaking to you through his written and preached word. Now, that's good news. Believe it, even if I'm talking about sin today. He is coming toward you. Even in the midst of our wickedness, God doesn't leave us alone. God had declared that Adam and Eve would die on the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17 of chapter 2, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But God administered that death in stages so that they would have opportunity to believe upon him and be saved. God did not leave them alone They were dead to him, but he was not dead to them. He continued to respond out of love. The love of creation is to make something out of nothing. And the love of redemption is that he wants the salvation of his people. Now, there's three kinds of death, as we reviewed last week. St. Augustine talked about spiritual death first. It's when the soul loses God. We lose God. Because we become dead in our trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1, we lose interest in the true and living God. We're unresponsive to God. We hide from God. We see that right here in the text. Our souls lose God. That's the spiritual death which they experience. The second type of death that Augustine talked about was bodily death. When the soul loses the body. When we die physically, our heart stops beating, our soul leaves the body, and our body is buried in the ground. And the third type of death is what the Bible calls the second death. It's second because it's in eternity, and it's that death of eternal torment. Revelation 21, verse 8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we're all idolaters. You don't have to have a little statue on a shelf in your living room. Our hearts are veritable idol factories, according to John Calvin. So we're all on that list somewhere. 
In the case of Adam and Eve, their soul lost God. They experienced the first spiritual death. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. This walking of the Lord, that he was walking, he was there for them as the Lord God was walking among the trees of the garden. Verse 8, at the beginning. This walking is a picture of God and his covenant love. That name, Lord God, capital L-O-R-D, is reminiscent of how God will speak of himself throughout the whole Old Testament when he's talking about his covenant love. He's coming to us. He doesn't give up on us. He cares about us. That's very super significant that in chapter 2, that name is used again and again as comparison to verse chapter 1. And it's also a, a word which was used when he was talking about these rebellious Israelites in the wilderness. They didn't go into the promised land when the good spies told them to. They shrunk back and God set them off on a wilderness wandering because of their disobedience again. And it says in Leviticus 26, verses 11 through 13, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. The walking here is fraught with all this implication as you look at the whole Old Testament of God being with his people, meeting them in a temple. The garden is a temple garden. And because this was a tabernacle experience where the tabernacle went with the people in the desert of Sinai around there, that this is the meeting place of God and he walks with them. He travels with him. God is with you in your journey of discipleship as a Christian believer. And he has done it because he has delivered you from slavery. The slavery to sin has been broken at the cross of Calvary, just as God brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery there. God wants to restore relationship with you, to remove your guilt and shame through loving relationship. And he points to the cross because this tabernacle is where sacrifices were made that all pointed forward to Jesus on the cross. He approaches Adam. And the problem is that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, they hid. Now, when you think God's up to something in your life, when you get witnessed to by a friend or a neighbor or maybe a spouse or, or maybe you hear a sermon or you read a passage in the Bible, when, when God seems to be stern, do you hide at that moment? When you hear, do you heed or do you hear and hide. You know, some of us might be hiding here. Some of our relatives might be hiding. Some of our friends and work associates are hiding. Hiding from the true and living God 
Instead, worshiping the idols of their intellect, their lust, their beauty, their athletics, their culture, their job, whatever. They've got their idols and they're hiding from God. Now, Adam replies, I heard your voice. And you know, that made me scared. I'm afraid. I was afraid, verse 10, because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, huh, who told you that you were naked? As if to say, I didn't create you to be afraid. I created you good. I created you without shame, even though you were naked. I created you in such a way that you didn't have to cover up with fig leaves to hide from your wife or hide behind trees from me. Now, interesting word here, naked. An interesting word in chapter 3, if you look back there in verse 1, look at 3.1 where it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And that's when he asked his leading question, Did God really say to you, You shan't, shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That was a lie. God had never said that. That was a cunning, deceptive statement. Now these words... For cunning and naked are like a pun, a play on words. The word for cunning is the Hebrew word, a rum, a rum. And the Hebrew, excuse me, the word for cunning is ahrum, ahrum. And the word for naked is the Hebrew word, a rum. Very similar words with similar consonants. And this is a play on the language which is meant to make us think that sin has turned these image bearers of God into an image of the devil. God has corrupted the image of God, as Meredith Klein puts it, and made them deceptive and cunning blaming others. They were created naked and it was good, chapter 2, verse 25. But after they learned the devil's cunning, they began to act cunning themselves. Now, you may wonder about that first married couple. Now, why were they shamed when they were still married? You know, it's not like they weren't married anymore. So why did they hide from each other with fig leaves? Isn't marriage the appropriate place for nakedness? Now, could it be that Eve felt like she was rejected by her husband? She was not treated respectfully and rightly by her husband when the serpent asked the woman a question back in chapter 1. Adam did not protect her from the serpent. Adam did not step in when the serpent addressed his wife directly. We read in 1 Timothy 2.13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. It was to Adam that the direct command had been given when he still was alone, and Eve had not even been created back in chapter 2. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, The head of the woman is man. Adam was the head, and he didn't do his job. Adam was supposed to tend and to keep the garden, chapter 2, verse 15. And these Hebrew words are the words that were used by priests 
to protect and tend the temple. They were supposed to protect that sacred space of meeting from evil. And Adam did not do his job. So therefore, Adam's wife felt neglected by her husband, and so she withdrew. She wanted to cover up because her husband had not covered her up. There's consequences, men, when we don't walk in our calling as compassionate, strong, loving, protective leaders in our home. I call you husbands to that. Be the men, the husbands that God wants you to be in your home. Be spiritual leaders. Trust in Jesus yourself. And then lead your home quietly but decisively. Read the word. Read the Bible daily with your wife. And trust him to guide you together in ways of righteousness. Now, similarly, Adam felt like he had been disrespected. And this put him away in a distant place from his wife, leading him to want to cover up in front of her. Why? His wife did not defer to him. When she got questioned by the serpent, you notice the serpent goes after the woman. They were together because it says in verse Number six, she also gave to her husband with her. He was there the whole time. And yet, having been approached by the serpent, the wife did not defer to him, did not look over at him saying, uh, will you take over here? Have you ever done that, wife? You look at your husband across the table saying, hey, husband, will you just step in here and try to deal with this matter? And Eve did not do that. Meredith Klein puts it this way, in approaching the woman and ignoring the man's prior responsibility, Satan had subverted God's marriage ordinance. The woman had not questioned that and now radically repudiated the marriage covenant with her husband while breaking the covenant with her God, unquote. She continued the dialogue of question and answer with the serpent, which the serpent had started, subverting the marriage relationship, not acknowledging Adam as the head, opening herself up to being deceived. Adam doesn't like this, and he blames God and his wife. Instead of stopping the freight train, instead of obeying God's law and not eating of the fruit, he went ahead and ate. And then he blamed God and he blamed his wife. He says in verse 12, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Adam blamed the woman whom God had provided for him. And this blame again is related to shame. Adam blames the woman and this leads him to cover up in front of his own wife, to put up barriers, wearing the fig leaves. Also, Adam blames God for giving the woman to be with him. You're the one that brought her to me. What am I supposed to do? The Lord brought her to the man, chapter 222. Adam blames God for that, and this leads him to hide in the garden in, among the trees. The chain of blame goes on, 
And then the woman says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So they're all blaming God and they're blaming one another. When we blame someone, we tend to self-isolate. We try to insulate ourselves from that responsibility. We blame shift, we put it over there, and then we cut ourselves off because we don't want any of it to come creeping back at us. We're not responsible. We hide ourselves from further contact and further embarrassment. The solution is to realize we are judicially not guilty before God when we trust in Christ. We are also relationally brought home to God when we trust in Jesus. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He will not only forgive us, he will receive us as adopted daughters and sons. You read in the Bible these wonderful words that God takes away the shame. Romans 10, 11, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, For whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now this getting rid of shame is part of our sanctification process. We are justified in a moment. We are heaven bound as soon as we truly trust in Christ. But over a life, we tend to need time to get rid of the shame. We leave it behind. We recognize bad things have happened in our life and we stop blaming and we stop the shaming. Let's read verses 14 and 15 now. Let's remember this. That enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed is God's plan for us to be saved. There's got to be a ripping away of our allegiance to the devil. I spoke to you about how when Eve and then Adam disobeyed God, they became allies of the devil. They were part of his kingdom. Meredith Klein puts it this way, the woman revolted against the covenant of the Lord of life and light and sealed an alliance with the rival prince of death and darkness, unquote. Now it's God's job to set things right, to put Satan down, so to speak, in the eyes of Adam and his wife, to put Satan down entirely forever before the whole creation. How does he do that? He does it by physically putting him down. Verse 14, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. You know, I hate snakes. I just hate snakes. I don't even like the non-poisonous ones. I don't even like the garter snakes. I, I, I learned I'm not supposed to kill the garter snakes, so I leave them, I let them go. But that doesn't mean I have to like them. There's something visceral about snakes that human beings, most human beings don't like. I guess there's some biologists. They have to study them, so they, I guess somebody has to like them enough to study them. 
but I hate snakes. There is this inborn disgust. And you know, that's a plan that God has to make us disgusted with the devil too. Because it's the devil that indwelt this serpent. Not all the snakes we got now, but, but we associate the revulsion of snakes, which should be our revulsion with the devil. So this sense of revulsion is part of what should be in our gut, our attitude toward evil. And this being put down is the opposite of what Lucifer wanted. Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 14, wanted to be elevated high. I will be like God most high. And he said, oh, no, you don't. You don't come up here. You're going down on the ground forever. And yes, this serpent is the devil and Satan, Revelation 12 verse 9, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So this ingrown disgust for snakes is related to our spiritual disgust for Satan. The enmity is being built here. And this connects with verse 15, the first part. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He actually puts hate between the seed of the woman and now this is the believing seed this is the seed that trusts in God and we will see that seed develop as we go through the book of Genesis and the seed of the serpent which is all the unbelievers all those who stay in their sin who are revolting a God and who have allied themselves with the dark night against the king of kings and the lord of lords. The sovereign lord here plans to make a believing seed of the woman, a generation that will go forth from Eve, which leads down, down through history, always opposing the work of the devil. This conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would be highlighted in the conflict between Cain, the seed of the serpent, and Abel. Between Noah's dishonorable offspring, Canaan, and his virtuous son, Shem, who was the ancestor of Shem the Semites. You hear that word, Shem, Semites? And the Semites are the people from whom God called Abraham who was the Israelite, who became the first of the chosen people of God. Abraham, the man of faith, is the seed of the woman, contrary to the descendants of Lot, his nephew. And there was enmity between Esau, the profane, unbelieving, immoral man, who sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, compared to Jacob, the believer in the one true God. He had his faults, but he was chosen and he believed. And the passage goes on all the way down to the New Testament when we read in John 8, 44, where Jesus says of the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Remember, Cain killed Abel and does not stand in the truth. That father, the devil, lied. He lied to the wife of Adam. There is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
Now, these Pharisees were the seed of the serpent. They lied about Jesus, cooking up a case for him to be crucified, and they were murderers because they demanded that Jesus would be killed. This brings us to our third point found in the second half of verse 15. If you read it there with me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the seed of a covenant of grace, a solemn arrangement of undeserved love that leads to the seed, capital S-E-E-D. It's the seed with a small s, the origin of the covenant of grace, leading to the seed, the fulfillment of that covenant of grace. Now, Abraham, who is among the descendants of this line of the woman, has a promise given to him. Genesis 22, 18. When he stopped killing Isaac, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord declared to him, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Here we have this declaration of Jesus in the New Testament as the fulfillment of that. In Galatians 3.16, page 1035. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. This covenant of grace established here in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Christ. It is a promise to establish blessing for all the nations of the earth. And it happens as our hearts are shaped to trust in God and to have an ongoing hate for the devil and his works. An ongoing love for people from all nations and yet a hate for the devil and his works. And we see here that this enmity is a hate that is part of God setting everything right. God has to isolate and marginalize the wickedness in his universe. It has rebelled against him, and he wants to put an enmity, enmity between believers and the works of the devil. And how does it come to pass? It comes to pass at the cross of Calvary, viewed as a unit with the resurrection from the grave. It's there where he, the seed of the woman, Jesus, will bruise your head, this head of the serpent. It's a bruising, or even better, a crushing of the head of the serpent. It's a permanently mortal blow because the head controls the rest of the body. The devil is crushed. When Jesus dies at the cross to pay for our sins and God receives that as a full payment by raising him from the dead, vindicating him. And yet, we see it's only done by the suffering of this son of God, the devil is the one who shall bruise his heel. This is a blow against Jesus, which does actually kill him. But then three days later, his death is reversed in the resurrection. It is a real death, but not a permanent death. 
And thus it is called a bruise or a crushing of his heel, not of his head. The difference of the places where the serpent is going to be crushed in his head compared to the seed of the woman, which is the crushing of his heel, describes who wins. Jesus wins, for he has crushed the head of the serpent, the head of the devil. It's a promise given here in Genesis 3.15. And it sets the whole arc of what is called salvation history. From here on out, we're going to read a lot of evil, a lot of sin, a lot of rebellion in the Bible. But the die is cast from our salvation, for our salvation from this verse on. As we are reclaimed by God who trust in Jesus. And this is a covenant of grace fleshed out more as he speaks to Abraham. And I want to ask you, as we conclude tonight, today, which side of this enmity are you on? Are you on the devil's side or Christ's side? You're going to have conflict in your life. That much is clear. But will it be a conflict that has saving power for you? Will you survive because you trust in Christ? Or will your head be crushed also with the devil's as you experience a second death. Come in faith today. And remember these three things. First, trust in the seed of the woman so that you will be saved and delivered from guilt and shame. Confess your sin. Turn from it. Cling to the cross where Christ was crushed. And run to the empty tomb that proves that his crushing was of his heel and not of his head. His death was not permanent but rather atoned for our sin. The second thing I call you today to do is to align your will to be on the correct side of the enmity which God is implementing between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is division in our world today. There's division in our world. Who are you going to be cheering for? Who are you going to be rooting for? Will you pray for God's afflicted people in third world countries oppressed by Islamic leaders? Will you pray for the church in Ukraine, evangelical believers, some of them whom I know, who don't want to be the, under the thumb of the Russian Orthodox Church, who would seek to take that whole religious environment over for themselves? Will you cheer for righteousness in our own society? Will you pray as Pastor Mike Nye gave me a prayer recently? Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command. Do you love what God commands and desire what you promise? That among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And third today, I would call you to push away the shame. Come through it and stand in the presence of your loving Savior and break generational patterns of shame. If you were shamed by your father or mother, don't do it to your kids. And it's never too late to undo damage when you are honest and transparent with your children, with your loved ones. Have a heart-to-heart. -heart. Talk about shame 
and how God has delivered you from it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't blame them. Don't blame God. And walk out of shame as we leave our sin at the foot of the cross and walk into the love of your church family. We don't have to hide here from God. We don't have to hide from one another. We can be open about our foibles and our ongoing struggles. And here is a safe place to hear the dangerous message of Jesus Christ. Dangerous because it roots out our idolatry and sets us on a path of being open to one another. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will never be put to shame. Let us pray. Lord, bless this congregation. Help us together to walk in the liberty of the sons and daughters of God, that we will not hide from you nor from one another, but that we shall be saved, relieved and forgiven of our guilt and brought into healthy relationships of respect and love. Bless us as we bring witness of this to our families and our friends, our work associates and our neighbors. We love you and we thank you for making that promise of a covenant of grace for us.